Let us hear then the word of our God, Psalm 114, beginning of verse 1. When Israel went out of Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of strange language, Judah became his sanctuary and Israel his dominion. The sea saw it and fled. Jordan turned back. The mountains skipped like rams, the little hills like lambs. What ails you, O sea, that you fled? O Jordan, that you turned back. O mountains, that you skipped like rams. O little hills, like lambs. Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turned the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a fountain of waters. The grass weathers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Well, as we begin here today, um, Stan just prayed uh, a moment ago about the great privilege that we have to come before our God in prayer. So my question for us is, why does God not strike us down when we seek to do that? We're sinners. God is not. So why is it that we can come before our God in prayer and even now, and he speaks to us through his word? Why does God not strike us down because of our sinfulness and our wretchedness? Well, with this in mind, let us prepare ourselves here for Psalm 114. And as we do, uh, let's uh, look at our handout here, this uh, colored handout that uh, Eric just passed around. And on the front page, especially for those of you who are visiting with us, uh, this is from O. Palmer Robertson in his book, The Flow of the Psalms. And uh, he gives us a nice summary of, of how the psalms are arranged. They are not randomly positioned. They are put together very specifically. And uh, maybe you've heard before about the five different books of the Psalms and, and so forth. And on the front page, you'll see how he summarizes it, these five different books. And uh, we have made our way through each one of these five books, but we've only looked at about 20% of each one. So in book one, we did Psalms 1 to 8. In book two, we did Psalms 42 to 48. And then two in book three, two in book four, and now we're here in book five, From 107, and we'll finish at 117. So uh, in the end, we'll have covered 30 psalms. Um, But we decided to do it this way so we could cover every theme in the Psalter. And so the Psalter is arranged in a general chronology. It begins with David and his coronation there in Psalm 2, which, of course, all that points to Christ. And, And then uh, shows David being established as king, but there's a lot of struggles. Uh, in book two, he's more established. There's still struggles, um, but there's more of this outward focus to the nations. In book three, they end up in exile, both north and south. Both kingdoms end up in exile. And in book four, they are relearning what is most important now that they don't have the outward means of grace in front of them. Here in book five, Psalm 107 begins by them returning from exile. And so much of Book 5 is about praising God for who he is and what he has done, bringing them back and so forth, as well as more of a focus on the coming Messiah. And so these are some of the themes that we have seen. And here then in Book 5, we see especially this emphasis on praising our God 
and this forward look for the Messiah. All right, now each psalm, of course, has its theme, and there are many other themes throughout the Psalter, but this is the overall thread, if you will, that ties it all together. All right, now if you turn over to the last page here in the handout, this is diagram five for book five. Um, We are now in the middle of what Robertson calls a pyramid of psalms, and they are called the Hallelujah Psalms. Now, if you look at this, then, Psalm 114 is the top of this pyramid. There are three psalms that precede it, three psalms that follow it, and so Psalm 114 stands out, and that's what we're going to look at here now today and, Lord willing, next week. Notice also how this hallelujah section is preceded by the key messianic psalm, Psalm 110, our priest king, son of David, in the order of Melchizedek. And then it's followed by a key messianic psalm. Hey, right? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Right? It was, it was uh, used there on Palm Sunday, as we call it, and, and so forth. Both of these psalms are quoted more than any other in the New Testament. And so they, they kind of frame this hallelujah section for us. So not surprisingly then, this hallelujah section became prominently used in Israel's history, and I'll bring that out here in just a moment. All right, now, let me show you how Psalm 114 stands out a little bit. Let's let's continue this this broader look here at first. Um, In this um, so-called pyramid, uh, the first psalm, Psalm 111, began with this praise for Yahweh for who he is, especially his work of redemption. Psalm 112, then we are to praise Yahweh by living a godly life. Psalm 113, as we just finished, focused on praising Yahweh for being the only God who transcends all things. Remember, he has to even come down to look at the sun, moon, and the stars. But he also comes to be with us, to lift us up out of the ashes and to set us with princes. Well, we come then to Psalm 114, and you remember, this is the hallelujah section. So we've seen hallelujah in these first three psalms, but now here in Psalm 114, there isn't one. So you would think this would have more than the rest, but that's not the way they did it. They put a psalm here that did not have the term hallelujah with it. And there's this focus on the exodus. And so this is our, our emphasis here. Now, as we'll draw out in a little bit and more next week, this focus on the Exodus is less on Israel and more on God and how everyone responds to God and his presence. So we'll draw that out here in a bit. Now, in Psalm 115, we return to the hallelujahs, and we find them in each one of these next three psalms. And this time, we are to praise Yahweh for being the true God, and idols are nothing, Psalm 116, we praise Yahweh because we can call on him for help, and this is more of an individual focus. And then in Psalm 117, the Gentiles are to praise Yahweh. So this is, this is the, the overall message with Psalm 114 standing out without a hallelujah and this focus on the Exodus. Now, the other thing that stands out about this psalm is that the name Yahweh is not used here. In Psalm 111 and 112 and 117, that's the only name of God that is used. 
In fact, the name Yahweh is used 39 times in the other six Psalms, but not here. Very strange. And the other key name of God is, is God or Elohim, right? That's only used four times in these Psalms, and it's not used in this one either. Okay, you can even add Psalm 110 and 118, and it, it's, it's highlighting the same points. So you have a psalm without a hallelujah, a psalm without the name Yahweh, and then this focus on the Exodus. This is at the pinnacle. This is at the top. It causes it to stand out here for us. All right, so that's the first broad point. Let's just see how it's arranged. Now, let me segue into how it became important in the life of Israel. These truths from this hallelujah section greatly encouraged Israel after the exile. And yet, it's a great encouragement at all times. And so at some point after the exile, after the Psalter was all put together, Israel decided to use these psalms every year when they celebrated the Passover. Okay. And this makes sense because Psalm 114 focuses on the exodus. And of course, coming back from Babylon is another kind of exodus. So it, it makes sense that they would uh, do this. So during their Passover feast, they would sing these psalms. Now, you remember, I've talked about this before on our Monday Thursday services and, and when I preached through Matthew and so forth. I talked about how they used these psalms. And so during their Passover feast, they would start with some prayers and then they would sing Psalm 113 and Psalm 114 before they ate the meal. Then they would eat the meal, right, the, the lamb and the unleavened bread and bitter herbs and so forth. Remember the four cups of wine that they would drink throughout the meal, and this connected with the promises in Exodus chapter 6. They would have more prayers. Remember the, the young boy would recite the story of the Exodus. All these things took place. And then they were, when they were done, they sang Psalms 115 through 118. Now you're like, well, what about Psalms 111 and 112? Well, how come Psalm 118 is put in there and so on? Well, think of it like this. They start their Passover meal by singing about Yahweh being the true God, being above all things, and yet coming down to be with us. And then they sing Psalm 114. The greatest example in Israel's history of God bringing them out of the ashes is the Exodus. And then in Psalm 115, <clears throat> excuse me, they would sing about Yahweh being the true God and that idols are nothing. Remember, that's why they went into exile, because they worshipped idols. And now they're saying idols are nothing. And then they would sing in Psalm 116 how Yahweh answered them in times of need. Certainly that was true when they were slaves in Egypt, but also when they were slaves in Babylon. God answered their prayers. And then they would sing about how the Gentiles are going to praise Yahweh for these things too. There's this anticipation of Gentile inclusion. And then they would end with Psalm 118 singing about this key messianic message, okay, the coming of the Messiah and how he is that chief cornerstone and uh, his sacrifice being bound to the horns of the altar. This is this is why he's going to come and to provide atonement for us. Now, <clears throat> we sing these psalms with a slightly different focus. 
because we think of our own exodus from our bondage and sin. We think about not being in bondage in Babylon or something like that, but uh, to sin and death and Satan and so on. And yet the overall message is still the same. And so you might remember one year in particular, it's been several years ago, I had us sing these psalms during our Monday Thursday service. Um, but this is what Israel would do. Now, <clears throat> um, you might then ask, well, what about Psalms 111 and 112? The best answer that I can come up with is, is this. Maybe Psalms 111 and 112 were never set to music. It might be just as simple as that, that that's why they didn't sing them. But whatever the case, they started with Psalm 113 through 118. They called the Egyptian Hallelujah. And so when Jesus was celebrating the Last Supper with his apostles, they sang these psalms, including Psalm 114. He sang that with Psalm 113 at the beginning, and then when they headed out to the Garden of Gethsemane, they sang Psalms 115 to 118, and then, of course, he was betrayed. Just days after everybody was quoting Psalm 118 about him. So with this kind of background. You see how important this psalm, along with these psalms here, was for Israel during their Passover. All right, now, let's turn our attention more specifically to Psalm 114, not just in this broader sense. And so if you look at your handout that I have for you there in your bulletins, um, again, for those of you visiting, I have been giving a translation, a more literal translation of each of the psalms we've looked at, uh, because unfortunately, many times when you transition from Hebrew to English, you lose some of the poetic elements. And so I have maintained a more literal translation here to help us to see that. All right, so <clears throat> on the back side of your handout, let me just briefly call your attention to some of the outlines for the psalm. And you'll see there's no hallelujah again. Um, and then there are three basic sections, verses 1 and 2, verses 3 to 6, verses 7 and 8. And the first and third outline highlight that. The second one subdivides that second section. Okay, so you can look at that, read through that again here this week and, and see it more clearly. Um, then notice also, as I, as I always do, I give you some of the statistics of which names of God are used and how many times and so on. And, and God's not even mentioned until verse 7. Not by name, and it's not the name Yahweh nor the name Elohim. In fact, he's only mentioned five times. Very, very strange, very unusual compared to the things that we've seen. And then the people, if you will, that are mentioned are actually the sea and the Jordan and so forth. Um, and so the personification, we'll see that more next time. All right, now, um, if you turn over then to the front... <coughs> We have seen through many psalms, but especially here in these hallelujah psalms, it's not just what is said, but it's how it's said that's important. This is part of God's revelation to us. And so in Psalms 111 and 112, how is it said? Well, they follow the Hebrew alphabet, right? The acrostic, as we call it. In Psalm 113, we saw here just recently that he hardly uses any main verbs, very few, and it's to highlight the ongoing existence of God and the things that, that he does. Well, now here in Psalm 114, the way it's presented to us is you'll see that in all eight verses, there are two lines in each verse. And every one of them 
are in parallel is the term that we use. And what that means simply is, is that the first line is given to us, and then the second line rhymes that idea in some way. Sometimes it's very, very similar, and so we call it synonymous parallelism. Sometimes it's a little more different, and so we call it synthetic parallelism. Now, you, as you look at this, you see how it's found in every verse, and I have both there, synonymous and synthetic. Now, that's because simply there's debate. You read one commentator, and they say, well, verse 1 is synonymous, and somebody else says it's synthetic and so forth. Um, but, you know, you could go around everyone in the room here and ask me, what do you think of when I say the word cold? And we'd get a variety of opinions. Okay? Some of you would say, well, last week was cold. Okay, well, if you went to Antarctica, it wasn't that cold in comparison. <laughs> okay, so that, that's why I've done it this way. But the point is that every line is rhyming the previous lines, uh, the second line's rhyming the previous line uh, here in this way. Now, the other thing to notice is that big fancy word ellipsis. Now, what this means is that you have words in the first line that are assumed in the next line. All right, well, without belaboring the point here, this is how Psalm 114 is presented to us, the way it's done, how it's done. And that adds to the poetry. So all this rhyming, all these assumed words add, as one commentator said, it adds dramatic flavor to the poem. And in fact, one commentator insisted, this is the greatest poem ever written about the Exodus. And he gave many reasons why. And it's certainly uh, an amazing uh, poem here in this way. All right. Well, with all that as some of our foundation and background and so forth, let's now look at the first two verses. And the first thing that we see is that there is nothing at the beginning. Okay? No hallelujah and no title either. So we do not know who wrote this psalm. There is no clear indication as to when it was written. I lean toward those who would say maybe it was written in the days of David or Solomon, but we don't know for sure. Maybe it was written after the exile. Now let's look at verse 1. Notice this is only part of a sentence. When Israel went out from Egypt, the house of Jacob, from a people who were speaking a foreign language, right, Got to wait for the rest of it here. The rest of it's in verse 2. Now, first of all, do you see the rhyming? You see Israel in the first line, house of Jacob in the next line. You see Egypt in the first line, and the people speaking this foreign tongue in the second line. Notice also the assumed words. When Israel went out from Egypt, and then those assumed words in the second line. When the house of Jacob went out from a people who were speaking a foreign language. So notice its arrangement. All right, so let's talk here first then about the name Israel and then this house of Jacob. Now, when we think of Israel, we might think of the whole nation, and that makes sense. But the fact that we talk about the house of Jacob may be that we should think back to Jacob's family when they came to Egypt in the first place. You remember the, the, the story that uh, uh, Jacob's sons sold Joseph into slavery and he was taken to Egypt and so on and eventually right they 
they found out he was alive and Joseph revealed himself to them and so forth. And so then all of Jacob's family, all 70 of them, came down to Egypt to survive the famine. And of course, they stayed there for over 400 years. Um, it seems like this second line especially is emphasizing that, this, this house theme, if you will, and how they came to Egypt. So maybe then we should understand Israel in the first line to be referring to Jacob's other name. Yes, we can talk about the whole nation, but remember when Jacob came back from Laban's house and he was coming back to the promised land and he was really afraid of Esau's brother. You know, what, what's he going to do? Is he going to kill me like he wanted to do 20 years before? And so he sent all these gifts and so on. And, and remember at Penuel that Jacob wrestled with God and God gave him a new name. Jacob, you may recall, means the deceiver, but Israel means the one who wrestles with God. And so uh, Jacob is given this other name. And, and again, because of this focus on I, the house of Jacob, maybe this should be our focal point here. Whatever the case, okay, whether we're thinking of the nation as, as a big group or the family who has now become rather large, the point is they went to a foreign nation, to a place that did not speak the same language. You remember back to Joseph when his brothers came to him and wanted some food. Uh, Joseph had an interpreter there, but he didn't need it because he could understand the Hebrew. But his brothers didn't know that right away because Joseph was speaking Egyptian. And, uh, but by the time Israel left Egypt, certainly they knew some uh, Egyptian. All right, now... <clears throat> Let's now bring in verse 2. Okay. When Israel went out of Egypt, the house of Jacob from people who were speaking a foreign language, Judah became for his sanctuary, Israel, his dominions. So do you see the rhyming of ideas there? You see the assumed word became uh, there in the second line. All right, now notice this first of all. Notice the pronoun his. Well, who are we talking about? Whose sanctuary? Whose dominions? Well, I've given you a clue because I capitalized the word. I think we're referring to God, and I'm certainly not the only one. But God hasn't been mentioned yet. It's not until verse 7 that God is mentioned. And so um, this is, again, very unusual. And so... As some of the commentators were saying, this helps to build suspense. It builds us up to finally this revelation of who did all these things in verse 7. Okay, but as we see, it is the Lord. It is the God of Jacob. The, the God that told Jacob to go down to Egypt is the one who brought them out. They went to Egypt as a family, and now they come out as a nation. All right, now... As we look at verse 2, do you see how it jumps forward in time? Well, now all of a sudden we're talking about Judah and the sanctuary. We're talking about Israel and these dominions. Okay. Well, when did Judah become Yahweh's sanctuary? Okay. Well, it was about 475 years after the exodus. It didn't happen right away. Remember, they went to Mount Sinai. The tabernacle was given. 
went with them right through the wilderness. And then when they came in with Joshua and conquered the land, they established it in Ephraim at Shiloh. So for Judah to be mentioned here as God's sanctuary, now we're moving much further ahead. We're talking about the days of David at the earliest, when David helped to prepare for the building of the temple, and then, of course, Solomon actually constructed it. The same idea, I think, can be used here for dominions. Um, there wasn't a king until Saul, and, of course, he wasn't so good. And then you see David, and then you see Solomon, and so on and so forth, right? And so we jump forward almost 500 years from verse 1 to verse 2. Okay? And then, notice how verses 3 to 6 take us back in time. You see how it's focusing then on the Red Sea crossing, the crossing of the Jordan, the mountains and hills skipping, probably refer to Mount Sinai and maybe even the conquest. We'll talk about that more next time. Why put the last thing first? Okay, even in verse 8, you talk about the water coming from the rock. All, you know, all that happened long before verse 2. So why put it first? Well, I think the point is, very much like we saw in Psalm 113. Here is the God of the universe who is above all things, has to stoop down just to see all these stars, and yet he comes down to be with us, to lift us up. Here is the same God, the God of the universe, who is actually ruling over all things, but is dwelling with his people. Verses 3 to 8 specifically emphasize the presence of God and how everything is responding to God's presence. So as we put these thoughts together, here is God who redeemed Israel, saved them, blessed them. But the focus of this psalm is, we're engaging with the presence of God, and everything is responding to that. Okay. And so, how many times do we talk about the gospel message, and we think, oh man, I'm glad I got my fire insurance. Oh, God saved me. This is great. I, I, you know, I get to go to heaven. Well, that's fine. But God came to be with us. That's truly amazing. And that seems to be why verse 2 is put here. Okay? God brought him out. Everything's trembling. Everything's responding to God. But he came to dwell with his people. That's amazing. That's worthy of a hallelujah, isn't it? But it's not here in the psalm. Again, it's just to highlight it. It's to set it apart. And so God brought them out. He was with them in the pillar of cloud. He was with them in the tabernacle. And then he was with them, of course, in the temple. He ruled also from his throne, the Ark of the Covenant, that, that throne that moved around in the wilderness, that was in a tent for many, many years, and then eventually was in Zion, in Jerusalem. We have God as our priest king. We have God as the one who rules over all and yet coming to be with us. Now, doesn't this remind you of Psalm 110? Hey, remember that, that gospel psalm that precedes the sections of hallelujahs? Hey, the son of David, the one in the order of Melchizedek, is our priest king. He is above all things. He has dominion over all. 
but he came to be with us. He chose to be present with his people. Now, how can he do that? Let's go back to my question at the beginning. How can we come here today and pray to our God without him zapping us? We're sinners. We deserve it. How in the world is this possible? Well, remember the psalm that ends this hallelujah section. The gospel psalm in Psalm 118 focuses on the, the, the cornerstone that is rejected by man, men but chosen by God. Okay? He is the one that comes in the name of the Lord. He is the one that is bound to the altar as a sacrifice. And so our, our God, our King, our Lord, is our priest, is our substitute. Psalm 114 is not just in the middle of these other hallelujah psalms, but it's also in the middle of these gospel psalms. And so the reason why Israel could survive the presence of God is because of the Passover lamb, because of the sacrificial system, because God came to be with them and condescended to them through his grace. Not because they deserved it. Now, we, of course, have just celebrated the birth of Christ. This glorious God came to be a little baby. The Son of God took on flesh to hide his glory, though they got a glimpse of it at the Mount of Transfiguration. This Son of God, this Christ, is our Messiah. He is the son of David. He is in the order of Melchizedek. And through his atoning work, Psalm 118, his death on the cross and made it possible for God to come and everything to tremble in his presence and yet could reside within Israel and we not be struck down. This is truly amazing, is it not? Now, for us, of course, <clears throat> Jesus came, but then he left, and he is not with us now. He is in heaven. He's at the right hand of the Father. But he did send his Spirit. And we see in John chapters 14, 15, and 16 about the helper, the paraclete, right, the, the, the advocate. There are different ways that word's translated. Hey, the Spirit came to be with us, to dwell inside of us even. And the, uh, the reason why we don't explode or melt into nothing is because our priest king, our Lord Jesus, the son of David in the order of Melchizedek, came, he is the chief cornerstone, and he was bound to that altar on the cross, and he died an atoning death for our sin. And this is why the Spirit of God can dwell within us. And, of course, someday we will be able to dwell with our God forever in heaven. It's truly amazing. The order, the arrangement of the Psalms. This is the message that we are to see here. And so you remember the words of Christ. When he, before he ascended, he said, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And within a number of days, he sent forth the Spirit the Spirit came and dwelt with his people. And hear then these words from Paul 
as he describes this. This is from 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Begin in verse 16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God, as God has said. I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Now, Paul's getting into some other ideas, but do you see how it fits, right? Psalm 115 talks about idols. Psalm 112 talked about living a life of fear before our God. And so it's very much within the same theme. So the point here, really, of Psalm 114 is simply, God came to be with us. And that is truly amazing. God came to be with us. And that should cause us to tremble. He is our ruler. He is our God. But we can also come before our Heavenly Father. We can relate to our, our heavenly brother, as it were, in Christ. We can be grateful, we can be humble, we can be amazed, we can be holy. Redemption is not just a historical event that we remember once a year. It's not just at Christmas time, it's not just at what we call Easter time that we remember these things. Every day we remember the greatness, the fact that God came to be with us and began a total transformation in his people. We were helpless, poor, in the dust, Psalm 113. God gave us a seat with princes, even in our eternal heavenly home with Christ. And so as we remembered the birth of Christ here recently, let us remember how all of that guarantees the things that I've said here today. So uh, a few thoughts here as we begin this psalm here today and we'll develop the presence of God uh, even further, Lord willing, next week. Let's pray together. Our Father and God, we thank you so much for your word and we thank you that uh, you have... um, You appointed men, at least Ezra, and probably a group of men to put these psalms together in such a special way. And uh, we are thankful for this section, this so-called pyramid section, framed with these gospel psalms, and how it points us then to these truths, that you, the God that is beyond all things, beyond anything that we can comprehend, has come to be with us. Not because we deserve it, not because we are worthy, not because we can even survive it in and of ourselves. But in your grace, you provided a way that we could have relationship with you. That you would bring us out of our bondage, not to Egypt and Pharaoh, but to sin and death and Satan. And you brought us to yourself and you rule in us and among us. And you dwell in us and among us as your people. And for this, Lord, we are most grateful. And uh, we give you praise. Hallelujah. That you would do this for us. And so, Lord, may we um, 
truly be awed at who you are and what you have done. And may these psalms encourage us here in this way. And so we pray these things then in Jesus' name. Amen.